You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, as I said, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen fast. The Packers just completed their exit interviews, and it was a matter of within, I guess, what, 24 hours? They told Menenga it's time to go. Now, I know a lot of people are very excited, very nervous about uh, Mike Pettin. And again, I'm still on the fence. I don't I don't know that it's as much of a slam dunk as everyone's making it out to be. I don't think it's hard to make a case that it's time to move on. Let me just lay out kind of the, the pros and cons. In the we need to fire Mike Pettin column, I think that the two biggest things that I'm looking at personally, and, and by the way, I, I'm... I, I, the last two years in a row, everybody hated Mike Pettin because of one game, and I think that's silly. Both years now, everybody just looked at the NFC Championship game and said, fire him because of that game. I personally wouldn't really make decisions that way. However, the... Is that a... There's my phone. Hello, phone. The the number one thing... Or I shouldn't say number one. I don't really know what the order is. But, but one of the things that would really push me in that direction is I don't know that we got the best out of our guys. Now, one of the reasons we should keep him is almost the exact opposite. (laughs) But we'll get there when we get there. I'm still annoyed that we paid Kenny Clark as much money as we did and didn't get any production out of him. And I know we heard from Coach Hahn and and guys like that saying, no, 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 he was great this year. Great how? First of all, I, I, I don't know. I'm leaning on PFF, who again is an NFL pro scouting system that I can pay for, and they do all the work for me. They watch every snap of every play, give him a grade, and tell me how he did, and they said, no, he wasn't very good. It wasn't just that he spent all his time run blocking and did a very good job stopping the run, and that therefore didn't get a lot of pressures, which, by the way, isn't a good enough excuse. As much money as you're making, you should be getting a lot of sacks. You should be pushing double-digit sacks. That's what really good defensive tackles do that make a lot of money. Run, run-stopping run defensive tackles don't make as much money. Guys like Snacks Harrison are never going to make $24, 25000000 million like the top-end pass-rushing defensive tackles do. And if we're going to pay him that much money, I'm sorry, find some other fat guy to stand there and block things while Kenny Clark goes and gets sacks. That's how this works. Completely unacceptable. And, and, and again, I don't really buy it. I think that's nonsense. I think when it's a running play, he tries to stop the run. When it's a passing play, his job is to get the quarterback, and he didn't. That's why pressure percentage isn't based on how many total snaps. It's based on how many times when he tried to get the quarterback, did he? That's what pressure percentage is. That's the percentage I use. I'm not looking at total snaps. And look, maybe that's not Mike Patton's fault. I don't know. Maybe Kenny Clark just wasn't very good this year. Maybe he's just maybe he's just not a very good player like we thought he was. Maybe he's a little bit closer to a Nick Perry and we all got fooled. Fact of the matter is, if we look at this, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm just trying to keep our options open here. In 2016, Kenny Clark rated out as a 74, which is good, not great. Then, 2017, 2018, 87 and 90.2. Really good, right? 2019, he fell off to a 79. This year, a 76. So he's had three years where he's in the 70s. Good, not great. One year close to being elite. One year where he was elite. 
So really, the really, really good years are kind of the anomaly at this point now that we have five years and three of them are good, not great. I don't know. Maybe this is just what it is. Maybe we were wrong. He's never graded out well as a tackler. Um, and then the, the, the run defense and pass rush, again, there's two out of three that are really good, and they, they stagger. 2017 and 2018, he had 88s as run defense grades. The other grades were 69, 67, and 74. In 2018 and 2019, he had 88 and 87 as a pass rush grade. In the other three years, 67, 69, and 70. Maybe he's just, maybe those two years were flukes. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just trying to think about what's going on here. I don't, I really don't know. I mean, he's never been super great in terms of pass rush, in terms of, you know, 15, 16%. In fact, his career pass rush rate is 9.7, which is bad. He's never had double-digit sacks. Not that that's the ultimate marker, but you feel like a guy that's one of the highest-paid defensive tackles in football would at least hit that mark once in five years. So maybe it's not Mike Pettin's fault. Maybe Kenny Clark just isn't as good as we thought he was. I don't know. We'll, we'll leave that option on the table. I, I, it makes me sick to even think that that's an option, but I'm going to put that one on the table. But there's also Rashawn and Zadarius and Preston, all three of which weren't really exactly what you want them to be. I know we were happy that Rashawn took a step, but his overall PFF grade was a 68, so not even quite good. He went from a 55 to a 68, going in the right direction, but a 66 pass rush grade and a 58 run defense grade. Zadarius, everybody thinks, got snubbed for the Pro Bowl. I think that's nonsense. He had a 76 overall grade. He had 59 pressures on 612 attempts. Sorry, you didn't even hit the 10% mark. That's horrible. 10% just means good, not great. That's the baseline. You got to at least get to 10% to even be somewhat competent. Well, look, he had 14 sacks. I don't care about just the flashy stats. The guy had three games all year where he had a good run defense grade. If I run through them, 50, 61, 89, 67, 61, 65, 60, 37, 83, 65, 28, 53, 60, 58, 65, 54, 45, 80. That's three. Three that was above a 60 or, you know, in the 60s. Three that were 70 and above. That's it. He had two games with zero pressures, zero, not a single pressure, three games with just one pressure, Three games with just two pressures, and, and these are 34, 37, and 47 attempts, so that's unacceptable. And that's that's half the season. Preston Smith, when we went and got him, had his breakout year in Washington at a 76.3. And this is what worried me about Preston and Zadarius. They were both coming off big breakout games that they've never been bef- they've never played that way before, and you think, yeah, they're probably about to regress. Here's what Preston Smith's grades were: 64, 63, 63, then 76 was his final year in Washington. We get that 76, and we're like, ooh, let's go get him. Then he goes back to a 66, which is kind of what he's always been. Then he drops to a 55 this year, which is the worst he's ever been in his entire career. So I expected him to regress. I didn't exactly expect him to have his worst year ever. 29 pressures on 446 attempts is putrid, garbage, horrible. That's absolutely, completely unacceptable. 6.5% is not even good enough if you're a 330-pound nose tackle. That's horrific. He played in every game that I can see here. He only had three games with more than two pressures. Only three. He had three against Carolina, four against Jacksonville, and four against Philadelphia. And with that three pressures, he had 28 attempts. That was basically just 10%. Five sacks. And of course, that doesn't even get to the part where we discuss his coverage abilities. 47 overall coverage grade. Well, it's hard to hold that against him because, you know, he's, you know, 
What do you expect? Well, I, I don't know. Petten obviously expects him to be able to cover. So we got to look at it because he got dropped into coverage 119 times. 17 targets, 13 receptions, 122 yards, and he gave up a touchdown. I'm saying this is not their full potential. So those three guys, those four guys that I just talked about, did not reach their potential. The linebackers are a bit of an anomaly, but I tend to think that it's a terrible group. Well, I mean, Kamal Martin did pretty. He did. I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by Kamal Martin. And, and, and maybe we can just pin it all on uh, Mr. Olivadotti, our linebackers coach, but I don't know that I want to. Um, I think the biggest indictment not only is that our linebackers are always terrible, it's the fact that our linebackers are actually doing quite good until Mike Pettin showed up. People tend to forget that. Jake Ryan, and, and if you've been listening for a long time, I used to talk about this all the time. These guys every year took a step. Jake Ryan was horrible in his first year. He got a lot better in his second year, and in his third year, he was actually pretty good. Blake Martinez, exact same thing. Terrible first year, decent second year, extremely good third year. Then Pettin shows up, and and, and you got to understand, both of these guys were really good run defenders. We didn't really have a good coverage guy. Blake Martinez had this really freakish year where he was terrible in run defense, but like for some reason he was really good in coverage that first year. So it was like an illusion that, oh, look, he's still good, just in a different way. Well, when that completely fell off and he wasn't a very good cover guy, he just became a terrible linebacker. And we're like, get this bum out of here. He's terrible. He's so bad. He goes to the Giants, and he's one of the best linebackers in football. I don't know that Mike Pettin does a very good job getting the best out of his guys. And so we look at our linebackers. If we look at our overall defense, our worst graded player on the entire team is Oren Burks, linebacker. Our second lowest graded player, and nobody's going to like this, but it's a reality, is Chris Barnes. Our third lowest graded player is Ty Summers. Our fourth is Randy Ramsey. Our fifth is Christian Kirksey. Four of our lowest five graded guys are linebackers. The only other linebacker that played a single snap is Kamal Martin, who was eighth. Now, maybe they just finally went out and got a guy that fits in Petten's scheme. Great. I don't know. But I don't know that I want to sit around and wait. Every time a linebacker steps foot on the field with a Packers jersey on and a Packers helmet on, he tends to do really poorly. Maybe it's just really hard to be a linebacker in Petten's scheme. I don't know. But other guys seem to be thriving in other places. I told you Christian Kirksey was bad. Well, when he's healthy. No, no, he's bad. And basically, his 48 overall grade is pretty much par for the course. His last three years, 44, 48, and 48. But he didn't get better. And again, Oren Burks and Chris Barnes were the two worst, excuse me, Oren Burks, Chris Barnes, and Ty Summers were the three worst players on this team. I just, I don't know. And do we just fire Olivadotti and say, well, we just need a new linebacker coach in here? Again, I, I just, I, I've been saying for a long time, the talent on this team is through the roof. But we're just not seeing it. Last year, I felt like we saw a lot of it, but maybe just different guys, and that's kind of where I come to the some of the issues that I'm having. I think if guys are bad, you have to put some of that on the coaching staff. Now, sometimes players are just bad, but here's the problem. We know some of these guys are not that bad. Kevin King was the next lowest graded guy. Well, we kind of know he's bad. He's always been graded really low. But Darnell Savage hasn't always been this good. Adrian Amos has never been this good. Jair Alexander is the number one corner in football. What do we do with that information? Now, maybe what we do is we look at it and say, yeah, the, the guys that were really good were the, were the DBs. We got a new DB coach. Great. Make sure we keep him. Heck, we can make him the defensive coordinator if we want, although that makes me nervous because then he's not the DB coach anymore, and I'm worried about regression there. So I don't know what we got to do to keep him on board. Maybe he, you give him one of those kind of fluffy titles that gives him a pay raise where it's like um, – defensive back slash assistant defensive coordinator position. 
doesn't really mean all that much. You give him a couple extra jobs, but not much, and you just give him a pay raise. And it kind of ups the odds that he gets a job somewhere else, which we don't want, but we just we got to keep the guy. I don't know. Maybe that's the best thing. Make sure we can keep that guy, get a different defensive coordinator in here. Because that's that that to me is unacceptable. Point number two, we have a second-year head coach. He's not very experienced with, you know, the whole head coaching scene. He's also an offensive-minded guy. He grew up learning about quarterbacks primarily, spent a little bit of time as an offensive coordinator for two years, and now he's been a head coach for two years. Mike Pettin has been coaching defenses for decades. I mean, seriously, he, he got his first defensive coordinator job with the Jets in 2009. He taught outside linebackers starting in 2005. He was an assistant defensive line coach in 2004. So he's been on the defensive side of the ball, learning defensive scheme, learning how defenses work, learning all these things for all these years. Explain to me how in any way ever is it acceptable for an unexperienced, offensive-minded head coach to have to burn timeouts to fix defensive alignments. He's literally called timeouts in football games because the defense was in a stupid look, and he has to fix it. He calls a different play. That is unbelievably unacceptable, and we saw it numerous times. And then, of course, you have play calls like we saw with um, no safeties back on the, you know, in that touchdown play. And again, you have the offensive-minded head coach. Basically, everybody. The fans are like, "What the heck was that?" The media was like, "What the heck was that?" The announcers are like, "What the heck was that?" You have ex-players looking at that, saying that should never happen. And then, of course, you have Matt Lafleur going to the podium and saying, "Yeah, I, I can't excuse that. That was the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. That should never, ever happen." Mike Pettin should be the smartest man in the room when it comes to defense, and sometimes he ends up being the dumbest guy in the room. And I'm sure there's some super ultra brilliant reason that he did what he did, but maybe he's just getting too smart and he's getting too cute for his own good. That is unacceptable. Biggest concerns that I have. If we flip to the other side now, again, number one, I don't know that we don't give him some of the credit. I don't know that it's a guarantee that that guys get better. Again, the 60 version of Preston Smith is his normal version. Kenny Clark is in the 70s. That's what he's been three out of his five years. Maybe that's just what he is. Rashawn Gary did take a step. Maybe he continues to take steps. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe this is all you get from Rashawn. Zedarius took a step back, but this is still his second best year ever via PFF. So he regressed and didn't even regress back to, I mean, his, his pressure numbers were down, that's for sure. But we're t- talking overall grade, 76. His, his grade's out of Baltimore. <laughs> when we picked him up, his highest grade ever, his big breakout year was a 69.6. Massive kudos to Brian Gutekunst and the guys on that staff who looked at him and said, this guy's going to be great because they weren't using PFF when they did it. His grades were a 58, 54, 60, and then 69 was the big breakout. So when he regressed from an 89.7 to a 76.3, it's a big regression, but he still hasn't even regressed back to what he was with Baltimore. And so I just worry. You know, if we bring somebody else in, it's a different defensive system. Are these guys going to have to relearn a system? Do we have to have a grace period, another year of, well, this is their first year, so they got to learn, so then we have a whole other year to burn? Do we have time for that? Do we have time to tear it all down and rebuild it? Do we have time to bring in a defensive coordinator who says, okay, the defense, here's where it's lacking. I, I can't run my defense without X, Y, and Z. And Z. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't really know. I know it doesn't have to be that way. There are some defenses that get coordinators in and they just do good. But I would think it'd have to be somewhat of a similar system. It's possible, if we want to get super crazy with it, that we could you know, get a guy that's a 4-3 defensive coordinator because... If Preston's gone, Zadarius and Rashawn are kind of hand-in-the-dirt kind of guys anyways. Now, Zadarius does a good job roaming around, 
But you could definitely put his hand in the dirt, and Rashawn, I think, might even be better that way, even though he, they've been training him this entire time to be a stand-up guy. But, I, I you know, you, you kind of feel like it, it should still be a, a either a 3-4 or a, a hybrid defense like it is. So that limits you in terms of, you know, who you bring in, because as much as they say, well, coaches will will employ whatever it is that, you know, they need based on the personnel. That's nonsense. They bring the same person, they bring the same defense with them everywhere they go because it's what they know. And they, again, you can do minor tweaks, but three, four guys aren't employing four, three defenses based on their personnel. That's not how that works. You know, and that's, you even just look at coverages. I've talked about the Bears a hundred times. The defense was doing really good with Vic Fangio and his zone scheme. They decided to put those guys in man and nobody could do anything. It's almost the opposite here. What happens if we take our press man guys and start calling a bunch of zone. And I, I know we do both. And I know uh, Jair can do pretty much whatever, but still, like I said, it's it's not, you can't be as good as Jair was and just be athletic. There is a cerebral component. He has mastered Mike Pettin's scheme and what's being asked of him. We take that away from him, I'm worried. I don't think you can just guarantee. We, we just, we get too caught up in this. Well, if we just switch it out, then everything will be fixed. Like the idea, if we if we if we just draft somebody, we'll fix it. Now, we, well, here's what we do: we draft a tackle, a linebacker, defensive tackle, and then we're fixed. Why? I, who who's playing, and how do you know they're good at football? How do you know they're not worse than the guys that we have? You know, it's like I I kind of went on this little Twitter thing yesterday about it. If you look at the wide receivers, for example, the three best wide receivers that were available when we could have drafted graded out about as well as Alan Lazard. And there's a good chance, because these are a lot of bigger bigger body guys or whatever, that they would have replaced Alan Lazard. Do we get a lot of production? How does how does that balance out in terms of what we lose by losing Lazard? Well, they would have replaced MVS. Why? MVS is out there to be the fast guy. Who are we drafting that runs a 4-3-7? T. Higgins runs like a 4-5-4. He's a big, strong guy. He's replacing Lazard, I'm sorry to tell you. So we just get it in our head. If we just replace it, then it's fixed. I, we said that about the special teams coordinator. We replaced him, it got worse. Are you prepared for this to get worse? Are you prepared to go out and get a guy that's not going to do as good of a job? We got to the NFC Championship game with Mike Pettin. This defense can be good enough. They had one bad day and we lost. After having weeks and weeks and months of very, very, very good defensive play. And they did that under Mike Pettin with Mike Pettin's scheme are we prepared to tear this whole thing down and rebuild it in hopes that it gets a little bit better instead of a whole lot worse? Because it's not a small chance that that happens. It's a pretty high chance that that happens. I want to point something else out to you. Vic Fangio with the Bears. I've talked about Vic Fangio a lot and how much I respect him. One of the things I've also talked about that maybe you forgot is that it took some time for Fangio to get this thing going. When Fangio first got to Chicago... Their defense ranked 20th in points and 14th in yards. They were one of the worst defenses in football. In year two, they were 24th in points, 15th in yards. If Packer fans were in charge, he would have been fired. They went 3-13 and and had, again, one of the worst defenses in football. In year three, they were the ninth best defense in terms of points, 10th in yards. Basically, Patton got almost to that point in year two. In year four, number one defense in terms of points, number three in yards. Do we have the patience for that? I don't think we do. It took four years for Fangio to get all the right personnel, get everybody completely coached up to understand the scheme the way that it is, to really master it, and to be one of the most dominant defenses in football. After that, he got hired away. 
Mike Pettin, at the end of his first year, was ninth in points, 18th in yards. In year two, he was 13th in points, 9th in yards. And again, a lot of those point issues were at the beginning of the year. Second half of the year, it was a top-five defense. So I, I just, I'm not super jumpy at the idea of let's tear this down and bring somebody else in. It might be great. It might be horrible. You look at the Miami Dolphins, for example. They, they, they hired Josh Boyer. So actually some interesting parallels here when you look at um, him and Jerry Gray because he was a cornerbacks coach for the New England Patriots for a very, very long time. In 2019, the Miami Dolphins, because you know, obviously the ties with the Patriots and whatnot and their head coach, um, they brought over Josh Boyer to be the, the uh, defensive pass game coordinator. The next year, they, they promote him to be the defensive coordinator, and Miami is the sixth best defense in football. Real good. And also had Xavier Howard, who was um, arguably the best cornerback in football. I know Jair took that title via PFF, but there's some argument there. So it did pan out quite well in that one instance. The Cleveland Browns hired a new defensive coordinator. They went from 20th to 21st. So that <laughs> didn't exactly have the desired effect. If you look at the New York Giants, they went from 30th on defense. Then they hired uh, Patrick Graham. They became 9th on defense. Um, that worked out pretty well. Washington brought in Jack Del Rio, which, by the way, that was the guy I wanted. I wanted Jack Del Rio because everywhere he goes, he is a freakishly good defensive coordinator. Washington hired him after being the 27th best defense. In 2020, they became the 4th best defense. You got the Minnesota Vikings, which I know Zimmer is technically the top guy, but they hired a new defensive coordinator. They went from the 5th best defense to the 29th best defense. The Panthers went from 31st defense to 18th overall, so there was some improvement there thanks to Mr. Phil Snow. And that's about it. I think everybody else has a whole bunch of 2021 hires, which is not great because these are guys that are already off the board. Jeff Ulbricht, um, Joe Cullen for the Jaguars, uh, Ronaldo Hill, Gus Bradley, Dan Quinn, Jonathan Gannon, Sean Desai, Aaron Glenn, Dean Pease, Raheem Morris, D'Amico Ryans. All these guys got hired this year. That's half the flipping league hired new defensive coordinators this year. So, again, it kind of comes down to can you find a guy that can do the right job? Now, the Packers have done a good job of, of finding the right people, um, possibly with the exception of Pettin. But, I, again, I, I just I don't know. How patient do you want to be? And, again, the biggest issues that I have are it's not that the defense doesn't look good at times. It's how, how are these unexcusable things happening? For example, you know, our head coach having to call timeouts and fix your mistakes. That's, that's crazy. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm leaning toward the side of we should get a new defensive coordinator, but I absolutely am I'm ready for the reality that this could go back to being like the 24th overall defense like we've seen for years. That could possibly happen. Anything's up in the air. And we're throwing a fit about being the 13th overall defense, again, top five down the stretch, because that's not good enough. And we're opening ourselves up to the possibility of being a bottom five, bottom ten defense, because we don't know what's going to happen. Who's going to come in, how good they are at being a defensive coordinator, how the guys are going to respond, how it's going to work with their skill set. We don't know any of that stuff. So I don't, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, he has not been fired yet. And again, uh, you expect these things to happen relatively quickly. I, I would be stunned if, to be honest, Olivadotti doesn't get fired because, again, I don't know what the linebackers are doing. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Again, with every day that ticks by, you have to become more 
certain that it's not going to happen. Still early. Uh, good catch by J.J. Leahy last year. The first time anybody got hired or fired was the 31st, first and only time last year. But, um, I mean, again, at some point you, you've got a GM that's trying to go out and get guys for the draft and for free agency, and we got to know, are we trying to build around Petner or are we building around somebody else? We don't have time to mess around with this. He needs Matt LaFleur to make a decision. So, anyways, there's that. Why don't we go ahead and take a break, and uh, we'll be right back. Make sure you get in the Packernet Podcast Facebook group. Like the page, Cheese and Packers Facebook page. Why does he have two Facebook pages? Simple. I had one. I put whatever I wanted on there, and Facebook's like, sorry, you can't monetize this because you put a bunch of stuff on there that we don't approve of. So we created a new one that can be monetized, uh, but I can't put any of the cool stuff on there. And by cool stuff, I just mean, like, I can't put any NFL film on I don't even know why they dinged me. Maybe, maybe that's not even it, but I can't put any of that stuff on, any kind of highlight videos. I'm not putting it on there because I don't want them getting flagged. So that's why there's two. Best way you can help the show is to spread the word. Um, I understand that a lot of the fans that are not interested in the offseason are going to bail, and I get that, and that's just the way it goes. However, there's a huge contingent of diehard fans that, that are starving for content in the offseason. I don't want the season to be over. we got i got to learn about free agency, the draft, all that stuff. Tell those people about the Packernet Podcast. It's actually a really good opportunity. As much as it stinks to see the numbers go down, this is a great time for people that are starved for content to find the show. Because obviously they're not going to leave during the regular season. There's opportunities here, folks. That's what I'm saying. Um, Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. Oh, before I forget, and I knew I would forget, except I didn't, so I'm proud of myself. Two things I just knew I would forget, and I forgot neither of them. One of those things is that Mr. J.J. Leahy has a survey that he's doing on Twitter. I don't know if he put it in the Facebook group or not. I would assume he did. Don't know why he wouldn't. But anyways, at J.J. Leahy, he's asking if you guys could do him a favor and do a survey. It's about the coaches. How do you, you know, sort of a satisfaction survey kind of thing. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, that'd be great. But finally, um, if you are a patron, and a lot of you already joined up, but um, I started a Discord. And the biggest reason I did that is because Every time I go into Patreon, there's a million messages, and I never respond to any of them because it's just not very user-friendly, right? If you message me on Twitter, there's a good chance I'm going to respond. If you message me on Facebook, there's a good chance I'm going to respond. The one place where people literally pay me, I never respond to their stuff. So then I created a Discord. It's a place where we can all hang out. We can talk. You can put questions down. I will look at your questions, answer your questions, whatever. In fact, obviously, they're going to get priority, whereas before, they were at the bottom of the pile because I just forgot they even existed. And then when you ask a question, and I'm like, oh, there was somebody asked me a question. I go to Twitter. I go to all these places. I can't find it. I'm like, I don't know where it went. It's probably on Patreon. I don't know what it is about their layout. There's just something about it where it's like, I don't want to go there. I just, ugh. I don't want to have to find the stuff. It's just, it's not good. So again, this will be that. So if you are on uh, Patreon, go over there. You're going to have to go there um, to find the link because it's, you know, obviously if I just post it somewhere else, then everybody can get in. If you'd like to be a part of that little group, all you got to do is pay a dollar a month. It's that simple, folks. Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. I had some people in the Discord encouraging me to find a different platform because nobody seems to like Patreon. If you know of something, let me know. Um, But that does seem to be the most um, convenient, at least. Anyways, why don't we take that break I was mentioning? We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built 
for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Six below outside. Six below. Come on now. You know, I just had to open my big mouth two days ago. I said, it's been such a nice, mild winter. It hasn't been bad at all. This is great, and it's almost February already. So we're, we're almost through it, because once you hit March, it's you still get some bad days. But you're kind of just looking at the cold like, yeah, yeah, you know. You, you know this is over. I saw the sun. You keep, yeah, I know it's snowing. I know it's cold. Yeah, keep playing stupid games. It's going to be raining in about two weeks, so stupid cold. Nice try. You don't scare me. I open my mouth. The very next day, we get like a foot of snow. That sucked. Now it's six below. So apparently I made somebody or something very, very mad. And now it's just going to be miserable. And I apologize for that. So I'm going to go over to the um, Discord slash Patreon questions here, which is now in a nice handy dandy little thing on my it just just fits in the palm of my hand. Isn't that so nice? I'm not going to get to all of them because honestly, I didn't even start to look into some of these because I didn't even see these questions until right now. But the one that I did work on is from John. Says, I have a question about the NFC Championship game. It seemed like, at least in the first half, that the defense was blitzing quite a bit. Felt like those were the plays where they got burned on third downs. I'm curious to see what Pettin's average blitz percentage is versus what it was in that game. Thought about it, and I said, well, PFF doesn't really tell me how much a team blitzes. However, it does tell me how many times a quarterback got blitzed. So if I look at all the quarterbacks and how many times they got blitzed every time they played the Packers, I would get that whole list. So I haven't. On average, Mike Pettin blitzes 27.5% of the time. Now, there's quite a bit of variance in this, but I will say that it was pretty close to to average. We blitzed the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 24% of the time. So slightly less than average, but pretty close to dead average. If you look at uh, the Chicago Bears, we very rarely... This is actually really... I'm glad you brought this up because I'm going to want to monitor this from now on. I'm actually very curious what other teams do. I don't, I don't really know, uh, but you get a glimpse of the game plan a little bit. You look at the Chicago Bears, we blitzed Mitch Trubisky 20% of the time in Week 17, 16% of the time in Week 12. Again, 27 average, we very rarely blitz Mike, Pet, uh, Mike Petton, uh, Mitch Trubisky. And if you think about it, it, it kind of, and I'm sure you can blitz or not blitz for different reasons. There's the quality of the wide receivers, the quality of the offensive line, the quality of the quarterback, all these different things. But if you think about Mitch Trubisky, you're, you're probably not super worried about it. You could look at it as the offensive line is bad and say, well, we can get home with just four. We don't have to bring extra rushers. You could be looking at Mitch Trubisky and saying, we're not afraid of him throwing, whereas you bump that number up a little bit. If you are scared of them throwing, you don't want them to sit in a clean pocket and be able to throw, so you bump it up a bit. If you look at the um, 
Tampa Bay the first time we played them. It was low this week compared to last time, 44.44%. 44% of the time we were blitzing Tom Brady. Now maybe the general thought process was we need to blitz him a lot because we don't want him sitting in a clean pocket. He ate us alive. And so we said we got to dial that back this time. So we dialed it back and we got to him, or we blitzed 24% of the time. I don't really know. But they clearly decided that blitzing as much last time was a bad decision. The only time we blitzed more than that was uh, week eight against the Minnesota Vikings, and we lost that game as well. So a lot of heavy blitzing did not work out very well for the Packers. And no, there's not really a bigger correlation beyond that. The other two losses, again, Tampa was 24%, Indy was 21%. But the two extremely high blitzing games, those were uh, uh, losses. But outside of that, it ranged from... You know, a lot of, I mean, he, he kept it right at about 25%. The Bucks was 24 The Rams was 25%. Tennessee was 28%. Carolina was 26%. Philadelphia was 23%. Indy was 21%. San Francisco was exactly 25%. Um, you had uh, Detroit was 26 You had a couple that were, you know, the Vikings 16 New Orleans 15 Houston was 29 Jacksonville was 34 Chicago, as I said, was 16 and 20 Detroit was 38. So I again, it's it's for different reasons. You can't point to it and just say, well, this is when we blitz a lot. It's because of this one factor. It could be a lot of different things. And then again, they might just change their mind depending on what happened last time. So that's about it, man. I you know I don't really have too much for you. It is an interesting thing to look at, but um, I don't know that there's that much there. It was he he blitzed about as much as he usually does. Goose asked who would be a good candidate for special teams coach. Man, I I got nothing. Uh, I know somebody had mentioned the Lions just let go of their special teams coach and that the Packers were interested in him and that the Lions had a good special teams unit last year, so that's an option. Not really sure why you would fire a special teams guy. Braden Coombs is the guy's name. Uh, via PFF, the Bear, uh, the Lions excuse me, had a uh, the fifth highest graded special teams unit. <laughs> the year before that, he was the special teams coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. Cincinnati was the second best special teams unit that year. After he left, they dropped to 7th. The Lions, by the way, the year before Braden showed up, was the 25th best special teams unit, one spot behind the Packers. They went from 25th to 5th after hiring Braden. I don't know why they fired the guy. I kind of feel like that's the guy. I don't. What else do I need to look at here? Again, coaches are, are weird that way. Where it, there, there seemed to be, like I said with uh, Jack Del Rio, that, that in my mind was a slam dunk. And maybe it was. He's doing a great job right now. But uh, sometimes there's guys that are not seemingly slam dunks that come in like Matt LaFleur, and sure enough, it was a slam dunk. So I, you know, I, I don't really have a, a big list, but um, again, the fact that he was brought in for an interview, he decided to, I don't know if we hired Menenga and then he went somewhere else, or if he decided he'd rather be with the Lions. I'm not entirely sure how that all panned out, but he ended up with the Lions. We hired Menenga. He got fired. Again, no idea why. Maybe it's just he left with the coach, but I mean, you can keep guys. You don't have to fire everybody. But whatever, they brought in a new coach, and the coach wanted to hire his own special teams guy, so he did, and here we are. Maybe that has something to do with why the Packers moved on so quickly with Menenga, because they want to get Coombs before, or, or anybody. You know, that's that's true of anybody. If you have somebody on your list that you really, really want, um, you got to get rid of your guy first. And if you dawdle and wait a week, this guy might get a job somewhere else. So it's possible they're already on the phone with the guy trying to work out a deal to get him in, and I don't know why you wouldn't. It's another young guy. He's only 34 years old. He was born about a month before I was. Actually kind of interested in what exactly changed. If we look at uh, Detroit's special teams, 
just the the guys. They had Jalen Reeves, Maben was so they had one guy in the '90s, three guys in the '70s, just on special teams in terms of uh, tackling and all that kind of stuff. Um, kicking grade was just putrid, but that was just kickoffs. I don't know how you mess that up. And then punting was bad. Then if you look at their returns, Jamal Agnew was in the '60s for kick and punt returns. All right. 2020, that didn't really change. Jamal Adnew didn't really get any better as a returner. Kicking massively improved, but that really has to do with them getting a new punter. So that you can't really put that on uh, the new special teams guy. And Matt Prater as a kicker did not get any better. And then the biggest test, and here you go, this is the biggest thing, the amount of guys that were special teamers in terms of um, returning and coverage that, that improved. You now have eight guys, um, but then the, the absolute quality. Like I said, there was one guy in the 90s and I think three in the low 70s. They've got Jalen Reeves-Maben at 71, Jesse James at 77, Jason Cabinda at 77, Isaac Nauta at 78, Romeo Aquara at 84, Christian Jones at 85, Miles Killebrew at 86, and Austin Bryant at 90. So you got a bunch of guys that are just very, very good. This is kind of what needs to improve the most anyways, right? On, on kick returns, blocking. On kickoffs, tackling, right? That kind of stuff. That all pretty, uh, pretty massively improved for the Lions. So there's that. Outside of that, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure somebody has a list somewhere. I have not compiled a list. Hey, Jeremy, what up? That that gave me a heart attack. <laughs> he's he's slowly... So I've got that um, GoFundMe account that you guys have given to, which is, again, thank you for that. Actually, I don't know if I said thank you to the most recent ones. Anyways, I'll, I'll get to that. But um, for whatever reason, they, they're slowly trickling the money to Jeremy, and then Jeremy is sending me that via Venmo, and I saw somebody paid me on Venmo, and I was like, oh, sweet, I got some money. And it's a big pile pile of money. And I was like, oh, my good, Oh, it's just that. I thought somebody was just extreme, like, won the lottery and was very generous. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, bud. What was I talking about? Oh, next question. I think. I don't know. I probably should say thank you. Let's do that quickly. Run out of time. We'll make time. I don't actually know if this is still open or not. Um, but I, I do think this is enough to cover everything. I should probably just sit down and do the math. <laughs> but I have not done that. But... Let's see. I, don't, I, I, I never know where I left off. We'll just go back to three days ago, even though I think I got some of these guys already. Thank you to Matthew Many, Andrew Robinson, Gary Opelt, Lou Proano, uh, Corey Golsrud, an anonymous donor, which are always the most generous. I don't know. I wish you guys would at least reach out and be like, hey, that was me. I'd be like, all right, thanks, dude. Stop being weird. And thank you to Justin Connor. Thank you all very, very much for that. Extremely, extremely generous. And I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out at how cool this setup is. I got to figure it out a little bit because the mic that was given to me as a gift is in front of this uh, monitor, which is technically given to me as a gift. And so I got to I got to reconfigure my layout a little bit here and figure out how exactly to do this best. But um, I'm very excited to start pumping out some content for all of you as a thank you, because a thousand episodes in and for the first time ever, I'm kind of looking a little professional here. <laughs> So we'll, we'll say that this was a gift for the thousandth episode. You guys don't have to do anything for that. How's that sound? Good, good. Thank you. All righty. Next questione. Kyle says, who will take over for Aaron Jones' role next year? Dylan will take over the Williams role, and obviously the replacement wouldn't be as good as him, or they would just keep him. Who in the draft or free agency is best slashing running back, or do they just resign Williams and swerve and see what happens? That's... So look, let, let, let's start with this. I, and maybe I'm just being a fanboy here, I really think Dylan takes over the lead role, and I think he is a very, 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 very good running back. Now, there's a chance they do re-sign Jamal, and because they love Jamal, and he is very, very good, 
they lean heavily into him and Dylan is is the number two. Let me just read this to you because it gets me, and, and I've been telling you, when he plays, he's incredibly good, right? We've gone over some of the stats and whatnot. I just want to read this from PFF. This is an article. It says, free agency fallout in Green Bay, fantasy impact for Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon, right? They kind of just run through a few things. This is, I'm just going to read this, Dillon's second year outlook. Dillon only played 11 games during his rookie season, missing weeks 9 through 14 after being placed on the COVID list, but he certainly lived up to the second round draft capital when he did get opportunities. Dylan earned an 80.7 PFF rush grade, 80.7 15th. I don't know what that means. He averaged 5.2 yards per attempt, which was 6th, 3.4 yards after contact per attempt, which is 7th, and ranked number one in the NFL in missed tackles forced per attempt at 31%. These accolades come with the caveat of just 55 rushing attempts, but former Boston College superstar's talent was obvious. Coming out of school, we expected him to be an absolute bruiser of a running back, Derrick Henry Light, and that's exactly what the 250-pounder delivered. They show a little clip of that last that play in the NFC Championship where he drug, dragged like six guys. It says, in the NFC Championship game, Dylan had one run that would have almost surely netted zero or negative yards for most running backs. Yet Dylan plowed over multiple defenders and ended up five yards past the line of scrimmage. That's why we don't skip leg day. Hilarious. Dylan saw 20-plus carries only once. Week 16 versus the Tennessee Titans, and he totaled 123 rushing yards with 93 coming after contact. He forced nine missed tackles in that game alone, which placed him in elite company as one of only seven running backs to achieve that feat in a single game during the 2020 season. It remains to be seen whether Dylan will see any work in the passing game. That was the knock on him entering the NFL draft, and we'll see. we didn't see any evidence that he's going to play a bigger pass game role in the NFL. He was officially targeted only three times, though he did at least show explosiveness after the catch. Two of his three catches went for over 13 yards. When you include plays negated by penalties, Dylan actually commanded seven targets. Part of the lack of his receiving work can be attributed to playing behind guys like Williams and Jones, who have established themselves as premier running back pass catchers in the league. They combined for an 18% uh, target share and just some other things that don't really matter. So again, the point is, he was kind of a monster in the little bit that we got to see him. And I know it got to be frustrating sometimes because he'd come in for like three plays and he would go down and he wouldn't get any yards. And it's like, this guy's no good. But again, as I said, if you give him enough opportunities, he always comes out on top. I think he's got some polishing to do or whatever, but I I just think he can be absolutely special. I mean, the things that he can, he can do things that other running backs can't do. Now, there are some running backs that can do things that he can't do, but that's just so far. Well, he's not as good as a receiving back. Well, neither was Aaron Jones or Jamal Williams when they started. He had a pretty good catch in this game, and if he can do that, you start getting him in space where he's catching passes and, and taking on, you know, linebackers and cornerbacks and safeties instead of taking on defensive linemen, it's getting into some dangerous territory here. So I'm excited. I'm excited for him to be a, a bell cow. And yes, the next question is who kind of takes that role, and I haven't gotten there yet. I'm... I'm I'm upset with myself for starting with offensive tackle because there's so many questions right now about wide receiver and running back, and I don't have answers outside of offensive tackle answers. But fortunately enough, I was trying to find this article, and I found one that is not what I wanted. But for some reason, they answered the question. Um, Here's a little snippet from Week 17 Mailbag. It says, while A.J. Dillon can catch traditional screens and swings, he's not going to be able to replicate any of the vertical routes or wide screens Aaron Jones has run for the Packers. I don't think that's true, to be completely honest. I think people forget A.J. Dillon is faster than Aaron Jones, and I've seen him run some routes. I don't remember if it was me breaking down college tape or if it was a game for the Packers, but he ran a route and just blew right by people. I think he's going to surprise some people running some wheel routes, blowing past guys. But anyways, we'll continue on here. It says, some of my favorite backs in the draft that can fill that kind of role, we're talking about the Aaron Jones role, Kenneth Gainwell out of Memphis, Michael Carter out of North Carolina, and Demetric Felton, UCLA. Again, I'm going to be looking at this kind of stuff. And um, 
please keep asking questions like this because I'm going to want to add and incorporate as much information into my little draft guide as I can. Um, I'm, again, I'm working on offensive tackle. I'm really happy with how this is turning out. It's actually on the same spreadsheet because I'm just that way. But um, yeah, I've got uh, a ton of lines here with a ton of information, and I'm excited to, to look at those kinds of things so that you can ask those questions and I can see it in a snapshot, right? Who's the guy that's going to be a good receiver? And not just good in terms of grade, but in terms of all the different kinds of statistics. Uh, what percentage of the time did he line up in the slot or out wide or, or run a route or catch a pass or any of those kinds of things. I'm going to have it right at my fingertips. Um, and one of those questions, and this is for wide receiver, that I have to remember to add when I start doing wide receiver, I had somebody ask who would fill that sort of Tavon Austin-y role. I should probably stop calling it his role, but I always forget the other guy's name. <laughs> so I just call it the Tavon Austin role. But there was one guy that came to mind, and it, it as soon as I, I went to go watch him, because like, I think that's who it is, and it just 100% this is the guy. Um, and it's the sort of jet sweep the guy that you put in motion kind of role, if you're curious about that, there's one guy in college football that fills that role perfectly. Now, I don't know if the Packers actually like him. I don't know if he's actually going to get there and be good. It's possible that he just comes in and is like Tavon Austin. He can do it, but he's just not a very good football player. But I tend to think, just watching what he does, it's like, dude, this Matt LaFleur has got to be in love with this guy. His name is Tutu Atwell. I think his name is uh, Charterius, his actual first name, but call him Tutu. Check that guy out because pretty much every play, his job is to be in the slot, go in motion, and, you know, that's it. He, he goes in motion like every play. It's an exaggeration, but, but he's sort of the jet sweep guy and all that kind of stuff. But that's another thing I want to add when I do wide receivers is jet sweeps and end arounds. What percentage of the time are they doing those? Um, unfortunately, it, it only says when they actually get the ball. It doesn't say how many times they're in motion, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever information I can find. But that was another question I got. Who would fill that role? Tutu Atwell is the answer to that question. I did reach out to Mark Jarvis on Twitter, and I said, is there anybody else that kind of fills that role other than Tutu Atwell? He says, not a lot of guys in that same ballpark that I know of. Try out uh, Dwayne Eskridge. I did look at Dwayne Eskridge. Actually, no, I'm thinking of somebody else. Um, Dwayne Eskridge is an option, but I, it was so painful to watch because that's such a terrible offense that I couldn't really get through it. So maybe Dwayne Eskridge. Um, I was looking at... Uh, what is his name? Tony, uh, Florida. Computer's all locked up here, so. I think his name is Kadarius Tony. I, I can't remember. But um, he's more of a Ty Montgomery type, if I had to kind of put a name on that. So he's he's another kind of option. He's more of a big body. The Packers seem to like big. So if there was a big body guy that we were going to put in that role, maybe Kadarius Tony would make sense. But, um, again, he's more of a Ty Montgomery lineup in the backfield, lineup in the slot, kind of do both kind of thing. Hey, negative seven. We're moving in the wrong direction. That's great. There are more questions, but I am completely, totally out of time, and the fact that my computer does not want to do anything is freaking me out that it's about to uh, shut down on me, so i got to get out of here. You folks have yourselves a great day. If you are a patron, please get in that Discord chat. It's just a place to kind of hang out, and there is a separate uh, area where you can drop questions and whatnot. If you want to get involved in that, again, patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy for a dollar a month. Otherwise, have a great day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye.